Some may say that the worst thing in life is suffering. But I can think of one thing worse. The only thing worse than suffering in life is suffering alone. It's one thing to face terrible pain and tribulation in life, but it's another thing entirely to, to go through that without any love or comfort or support, even a shoulder to cry on. That loneliness in the valley of suffering would be truly crushing. I had a friend in my previous church, a good man, an involved member named Wes Stone. He was never in the best health, though. He had acute pancreatitis. It was basically killing him from the inside. The doctors could never figure out what really was going on, how to, how to cure him, get him better. And so all the while he was suffering, went through some serious pain and discomfort. And he went to be with the Lord in 2011. But that final year of his life, that calendar year, 365 days, he spent, I think, over 200 of those days just lying in a hospital bed in a lot of pain. And I think the only silver lining in that difficult trial was the fact that he had company. Lots of company. Dozens, if not over 100 different people over that time went to visit him in the hospital, sing some hymns with him, pray with him, read scripture with him, just keep him company. It was a great encouragement to his soul. Just imagine if that were you. Nobody wants to go through something like that, but at least you could sort of comfort yourself knowing that you wouldn't have to suffer alone. Others would bear the burden with you, pray with you, give you some support. At least just just be there with you, keep you company. Though your body might be wasting away, your soul would find some encouragement. But just imagine, what if you had to go through something like that totally alone? You're in the hospital for 200 days. You've got no friends. You have no family. Throughout that whole time, you you don't get a single visitor. There's no balloons. There's no cards. There's no flowers. Just nothing. You're totally by yourself. It's hard to imagine. It's depressing to even think about. Then take that a step further. What if, in addition to your loneliness, all the nursing staff hated you? What if they hated your guts and they wanted to see you die? You could feel the enmity as they walk in the room. You just imagine that. We can't imagine that. That's insufferable. No one, no one could put up with that. And I know this is depressing and disturbing to think about, but I bring it up on purpose because that's just a slight taste of what Jesus went through in his death on the cross. Jesus faced unspeakable suffering. No human can or has or ever will approach that level of suffering as he met the full wrath of God on the cross. And to make this sting worse, Jesus suffered alone. He was truly alone. His friends abandoned him. He was surrounded only by his enemies. He had no earthly comfort. And to make it even worse, on top of that, is that the people that were around him hated his guts. They wanted him to die on that cross. They they put him there. He was surrounded by enemies. And they hurled insults as he hung there. We can't truly imagine this in it breaks a heart to think about, but that was his mission. The Messiah had to come and die and suffer alone. Only he could face God's wrath for us. Like Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. But in facing that solitary suffering, Jesus overcame. He purchased our salvation. And now because of him, we don't have to suffer alone eternally. This is why we give him the praise. This is why we give him the glory. This is why he's our Lord and Savior. He paid this ultimate price for us. And 
We can never afford to forget that price. And this morning from Mark 14, we find a special passage that highlights the solitary nature of that price he paid for us as our lonely Savior. In this passage, Jesus truly becomes alone. This is the point where everybody leaves his side. His friends flee from him. He's surrounded by his enemies, those who want to see him suffer and die. This is now, finally, that that turning point in Mark's Gospel where the hour for which he came has begun. It's Mark 14, 43 through 52. Would you open your Bibles there now? Mark 14. Now, as you're opening, I'll give you a little bit of a background refresher. Most of Mark 14 recounts Thursday in Christ's Passion Week. He had the disciples go and prepare a room for them to observe a last Passover meal, which Jesus transformed into a last supper, a communion meal, as he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. After that meal came to an end, Jesus and the disciples departed. They left Jerusalem, went across the Kidron Valley, stopped by a Garden of Gethsemane to pray. We spent three weeks studying that already. And during that time, however, Judas was not with them. A couple days before that, Judas had already snuck away to the chief priests and leaders to turn Jesus in, to betray Jesus unto death. He sold Jesus out for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And from then on out, Judas was just waiting for an opportune time to hand him over, so to speak. And come that Last Supper, Judas found his perfect time. During the course of that lengthy meal, Judas left the upper room. He went straight to the temple complex, to the religious leaders, and and told them this was the time to take Jesus. Judas knew that Jesus was going to end up going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Like John 18.2 says, Jesus had met there often with his disciples. So Judas proceeds to lead a band of soldiers and religious authorities to the location of Jesus where they can finally arrest him in secret. Just as Jesus finishes his time of prayer, this angry mob shows up right on time, right on schedule, and the hour for which he came begins. After this, nothing will be the same. This marks the end of Christ's freedom. He will know nothing but suffering from here on out until the end. But of special note in this passage for today, it's all the different players who are involved here. There's the mob, Judas, Peter, the other ten disciples, a special unnamed disciple. Jesus, he's surrounded by a lot of people in this passage, yet by the end, he's totally alone. All those who followed him leave, and everyone else, well, they just want to kill him. He is, in the truest sense, abandoned. And what he will face next, he will face alone. I want us to go through this passage now and pay special attention to all these different characters and players in this drama and note how by the end they all forsake Jesus one way or another. Let's start with this. Number one, the mob's breakdown. If we can put it that way, the mob's breakdown. Start reading in verse 43 with me. Mark 14, verse 43. It says, Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now we'll get to Judas in a minute, but first, if, if you read carefully, verse 43 introduces us to this large mob that descends upon the position of Jesus. 
And let's talk about the, the breakdown of this mob. Who was involved in the arrest of Jesus? Judas leads the way, but he's accompanied by, it says, a crowd with swords and clubs. Sounds kind of vague. John's gospel, he tells us more specifically, this is a Roman cohort and the temple guard, temple police. Roman cohort was normally made up of 600 soldiers. They were known for an overwhelming show of force to apprehend a soldier, put down a rebellion, like when they arrested Paul. Now, there's no telling if a full cohort was here to arrest Jesus. They sometimes had a smaller detachment of about 200 soldiers. But either way, I mean, just think, there are at least a couple hundred soldiers armed with swords standing there in this garden surrounding the place to arrest Jesus and put down any rebellion. You also have the temple guards. These are the temple police who were Jews, mostly Levites, and they guarded the entrance to the temple mound and they oversaw the temple complex. They weren't a military force. They were more like the cronies of the Jewish leaders. John tells us they had lanterns and torches as well. So it's this classic mob and pitchfork scene. They're an angry mob. And you wonder, why this huge show of force? Well, the Romans have been deceived into thinking they're going to apprehend a rebel leader. The last thing they want is for an insurrection in Jerusalem during the time of Passover. They've dealt with enough of those. And so they're ready to put down any uprising with lethal force. Now, we know, and the religious leaders knew, Jesus is not a rebel leader. He's a nonviolent teacher. He's done nothing wrong. He taught openly in the temple every day. If he had done something wrong, he could have arrested him any time. But there's clearly something more going on here. And indeed, verse 43 says, the real source of this mob are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. In fact, Luke 22 says these, these three groups, they tagged along. They were present. They were in this mob. These three groups represent the different levels of Israel's religious leadership Many of them compose the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling body. We'll learn more about these guys and their motives next week in the next passage. But in short, they want Jesus dead because he threatens their power. Jesus didn't play by the rules. He set himself against them. And and as Jesus ascended in power, he was threatening the religious establishment. And with all this talk of Jesus being Messiah, he could easily lead an uprising That would just invite the Romans to invade, and that would mean the religious leaders would for sure all be deposed. For many reasons, they saw the continued existence of Jesus as as a real threat to their existence, to their power, and so he had to go. They concluded he had to go. For quite some time, actually, they've been trying to arrest and to kill Jesus. Earlier in the Passion Week, Jesus cleansed the temple, drove out the money changers, and Mark 11:18 says they wanted to arrest him and kill him right then and there, but they were scared of the crowd. He's still too popular. So they had to be sly about this. Their plan was to trap Jesus in his teaching. And so the following day in the Passion Week, one by one, Jesus, he's teaching in the temple, and one by one, this stream of priests and elders and scribes, they come up to Jesus and they try and trap him in some statement. If they can just get him to to speak out against God's law or to speak out against the Roman rulers, they'd finally have a legitimate grounds to arrest him. But it doesn't work. It fails every time. In fact, even worse, Jesus 
turns the table on them every time, and they're forced to retreat with their tail in between their legs every time. And so clearly, that plan wasn't lurking, working. By the end of Mark 11, Mark 12, they figured out plan A is not working. We need a plan B. There's got to be some other way to get Jesus. And so they decide we've got to get him in secret, away from the public eye. And that's how Mark 14 starts, if you remember, back in verse 1 of Mark 14. You can look there. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So that's their plan B. They're just looking for the perfect time. And not long after that, they were served a golden opportunity in the form of Judas. Look at verse 10 of Mark 14. A little bit later it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This was just the break they were looking for. Finally, they had an insider, one of the twelve, who could tell them about all the, the hidden whereabouts of Jesus when he would be alone. Through Judas, they could finally arrest Jesus in secret. They'll bring up phony charges later. They just got to get him alone. And indeed, next week, we will see those phony charges that they bring up against him. But this explains what we have going on in our text. Judas has found that opportune time and that last supper. That's a long meal, a four-hour meal. They'll be in that room for a long time. And so he leaves the upper room to tell the religious leaders. The Sanhedrin assembles. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night. They have to act fast. They need the help of the Romans. They want to execute Jesus. But the Jews do not have that authority under Roman rule. They need the Romans to carry out the death penalty. So the chief priest surely appealed to the Roman garrison stationed at the Antonia Fortress just outside the temple complex. He told them for sure, that he knew the whereabouts of a rebel leader, an insurrectionist, someone who claimed he was king, not Caesar. The Romans had to take such threats seriously. It's like today, if you call in a bomb threat on a plane, they have to take that threat seriously. The Romans had dealt with enough insurrections in Jerusalem, especially around Passover. It's the last thing they wanted. So they detach uh, some soldiers, 200 to 600 soldiers. They send a detachment Go get this guy. We, we can't take the risk. Go, go get him. And so there they go. The temple police follow along. The religious leaders follow along. And as they're walking, I'm sure they're thinking that their plan has worked. It's working. Plan B is working. Finally, they found a way to capture Jesus out of sight, outside the city, and under the cover of darkness. It, it's just it's perfect. It's the perfect plan. It's, it's working. And there's great irony here, though. The Jews hated the Romans and looked to the Romans to deliver them, or looked to the Messiah to deliver them from the Romans. But they hated Jesus so much more, they're willing to enlist the help of their greatest enemies to kill him. They claimed to look to the Messiah to conquer the Romans, but now they're looking to the Romans to conquer the Messiah. It just goes to show that they're no better than the Filthy, pagan Romans. In fact, they're much, much worse. But none are worse than the man on whom this whole plan depends. 
and that is Judas. Number two, Judas's betrayal. Secondly, Judas's betrayal. This picture of the scene is just after midnight, so it's dark. But Passover is near, so there's a full moon. It's quiet. The only sounds in the Garden of Gethsemane are the weeping of Jesus and the snoring of the disciples. But just as Jesus finishes his third prayer, he hears the unmistakable sound of a small army marching. He can hear the the clanking of the swords and the armor. He can see the the light of their torches as they wind up the path to the garden. How could you not? He knows exactly what's about to happen either way. And so he rouses Peter, James, and John up, gets them awake. He says to them, verse 42, but like from last week, he says, Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This is not Jesus trying to flee. In fact, he goes out to meet his accusers. As Judas and the mob enter the garden, the other eight disciples scurried along and and came to his position. And just as Peter, James, and John are waking up, while Jesus is talking, Judas and the mob just burst onto the scene somewhere in the garden. We, the reader, we already know his intentions, Judas. We know what he's up to, what he's going to do. We just have yet to figure out how exactly he's going to do this. But verse 44 tells us. Look at verse 44. It says, Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Jesus or Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. Three times in the span of four verses, it is mentioned that Jesus is being betrayed. By whom? Verse 43 emphatically says, Judas, one of the twelve. Three times in Mark 14, Judas has been called one of the twelve. Why? I mean, look, we already know Judas is one of the twelve. But but that fact is shoved in our faces and we're reminded of that on purpose because it just highlights, it deepens the the sense of betrayal here. This isn't anybody. This is one of the twelve. This was an inside job. Judas was a man who had unprecedented and unparalleled access to the second member of the Trinity in, in human form. Just think about that. He walked with Jesus, talked with him. He ate with the God-man. Only 11 other men had that privilege to this level. He had a front row seat to all those miracles. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and many more. He heard all of Christ's teaching. He beheld the word of God. Judas knew, like the rest, that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that. He believed that. They all did. Or you wonder, okay, well, what changed? What happened? Well, the fundamental difference between Judas and the other disciples was that in the end, he's out for himself. Judas was always out for himself. He served self. His God was self. Judas, like the other Jews, expected the Messiah to be a conquering king who would overthrow the Romans and usher in Jewish rule. And to this, Judas thought he saw his own power, his own prestige. He saw dollar signs. I mean, just think of all the opportunities he could have as one of the Messiah's top guys. So he was happy to stick around the Messiah. It was his ticket to a nice life, a good life, his own power. 
But as time went on and Jesus started revealing the true nature of the Messiah's mission, at least at first, his first coming, Judas became quickly disillusioned. Notably, Jesus revealed that he, the Messiah, he didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to die, to, to defeat sin first and foremost. That didn't sound right to Judas, though. What about the kingdom? And furthermore, Jesus promised a similar fate to his disciples. He said, by the way, you guys too will have to deny yourself and pick up your crosses. That, that did not sound nice to Judas. He, that's, not, that's not what he signed up for. That's not the ticket to the nice life he thought it was going to be. He came to resent everything Jesus stood for, everything he said. And as the saying goes, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Christ's righteousness confronted the evil in Judas's heart, and instead of repenting, his heart merely turned to stone. He ended up selling Jesus out, his master, for 30 pieces of silver, price of a slave. That's how much Jesus was worth to him in the end. Judas exemplifies the wrong end of the warning that Jesus himself gave. Mark 8:36, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? To Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. Now, the warning still holds true. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you know who will receive the harshest judgment? It's churchgoers who prove to be merely hearers of the word and not doers of the word, as James would put it. Those who have come close to the truth, they have beheld the Son of God every Sunday morning, sermon after sermon. They have so much knowledge, but then they turn away, they fall away, they turn their back on the Lord. Those will receive the greatest wrath. As Hebrews 10.29 says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Of course, on top of that list is Judas. He had the audacity and the deadness of soul to even betray Jesus with a kiss. And that served a tactical purpose. It was dark. Jesus wasn't alone. The Romans didn't know what Jesus looked like, so they needed some way to identify the guy they're trying to arrest. Judas, of course, volunteered. He will signal him with a kiss. And of course, that detail only accentuates the, the level of betrayal. He could have just pointed him out. But he wanted to keep his little ruse up until the very end. And, and a kiss. In that culture, that was a sign of deep love and admiration, respect. The same word is used for the father kissing his prodigal son as he returns home. Judas was, was keeping this up to the very last second, his deception. Jesus wasn't fooled. Jesus knew that Judas was betraying him with a kiss, as Luke 22 says. How did Jesus respond? This is even more amazing. Matthew 26:50 tells us Jesus said to Judas as he was kissing him, "Friend, do what you've come to do." Jesus called him his friend until the very end. Was that not one final plea, one last extension of grace, Judas, the man who knew so much grace and mercy? Jesus was going to be arrested 
No, no talent. No, no other way for that to turn out now. But Judas, theoretically, he could have still repented. The door of mercy is always open in this life if you would just humble yourself and turn to Christ. It's never too late until you die. But for him, he proved his heart was was too hardened. There would be no turning back. This is the last mention of Judas in Mark's gospel. Matthew tells us his fate, however, which you probably already know. After seeing Jesus condemned, he was crushed by guilt. He still wasn't satisfied. It was a worldly sorrow, though. The 30 pieces of silver didn't fill up the the hole in his heart, so to speak. He wasn't satisfied. He was still unwilling to turn to God, though. And so with no other recourse, the only way to escape the crushing guilt was suicide. So it says he went out and he hung himself. Even worse, Acts chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that as he did so, the branch broke or the rope broke and he fell off a cliff and he was dashed on the rocks below. It's a sad, pathetic end to the man who received the greatest privilege in all of human history. But the shame of his death pales in comparison to the eternal death that he now experiences. And the same goes for all those who forsake Christ one way or another. Those who live for self in this life, no matter how they exit this life, they will enter the next life eternally separated from the only one who could have satisfied their souls. Such is the tragedy of Judas and his betrayal. For now, though, our attention is shifted. Number three, Peter's brashness from Judas's betrayal. The third, the third player in this little drama, Peter's brashness. Let's go to verse 46. They laid hands on him and seized him, speaking of Jesus. Verse 47 says, though, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. The soldiers move in on Jesus. Luke 22:49 actually tells us the disciples asked Jesus a question. The soldiers are coming closer. The disciples ask Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Among the 11 disciples, we know that two of them carried swords. One of the two was Peter. And before Jesus could answer that question, Peter takes out his sword and he strikes. He lashes out. And according to the Gospel of John, it is Peter who is this unnamed disciple who takes off this guy's right ear. And John also tells us it was the right ear, by the way. And he also tells us the slave's name was Malchus, the slave of the high priest. Now what's with this you know, cutting off an ear? Well, it seems pretty obvious Peter wasn't aiming for his ear. He was aiming for his head. But he's not a soldier. He's a fisherman. So he missed. And as he brought down the sword, he he thankfully missed and merely took off his right ear. But still, you could say Peter was shooting to kill, so to speak. He was trying to to fight. Of course, we expect this from Peter. He's the brash one. He's the impulsive disciple. He wears his heart on his sleeve. Why is he resorting to violence, though? This is Peter's attempt to make good on his boasts. Above them all, he claimed he was going to fight and die for Jesus. If they they were going to go down, he was going to go down swinging. 
He thought he was proving himself loyal. In this way, his devotion is admirable, but as is often the case, Peter is sorely misguided. Mark doesn't tell us any more details after this, but the other Gospels fill us in on a little bit about what happened next. According to Matthew, Jesus immediately rebuked Peter after he took the guy's ear off. Matthew 26:52. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. First, Jesus says violence is not the answer here. Two wrongs don't make a right. Peter is not justified to commit murder here, and if he does so, his own capital punishment will be all that awaits him. Then Jesus says, verse 53 of Matthew, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? If if Jesus really needed deliverance, he wouldn't be relying on Peter and his puny sword. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. 12 legions was 72,000 soldiers, or in this case, 72,000 angels. We know how one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. So what can 72,000 angels do? He doesn't need Peter. If Jesus wanted to be free, he'd be free. And Peter needed to understand, even though this was unjust, Jesus was purposely going through with this. His life was not being taken from him. He was offering it up. This was the Father's will, and Jesus is on board. So he concludes, verse 54 of Matthew 26, he says, How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? This is the plan. This is how it's meant to go down. The Messiah must be betrayed into the hands of sinners. But in reality, his life was not being taken from him. He he, he was giving it away. He was giving himself into the hands of sinners. Jesus has embraced the cup of wrath that he will shortly drink. And that's why we also learn in John, at the same time, Jesus, after this, he says to Peter, John 18, 11, he says, put the, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He has this total resolve, and he tells Peter, put it away. Thankfully, Jesus diffuses the situation. Just, just picture this scene. The soldiers are there. A few soldiers come up to Jesus. They lay hands on him. Peter lashes out. He strikes at the person just closest to him, which is the slave's the high, high priest slave, he cuts off his ear. Blood is streaming down Malchus's face. In an instant, you hear the sound of 200 swords coming out of their sheaths. All the Roman soldiers are ready. This is what they came prepared for, to fight. And if Jesus didn't say something, there was going to be a bloodbath. They were going to kill all of the disciples right then and there. Jesus basically saves their lives. In fact, Jesus doesn't just say something, he does something. You almost get the picture, he's making amends for Peter's brashness. According to Luke 22:51, Jesus, after this, he reached over to Malchus and he touched his right ear and he healed it. And this is so amazing when you think about it. Did you know this is Christ's last miracle? This is his final miracle, not counting his own resurrection. This is his last miracle. He acted selflessly until the end. And furthermore, here was yet another undeniable miracle. 
All these Romans, all these Jews witnessed. I mean, who can do this? Who do they think they're dealing with? Who do they think they're arresting? Shouldn't they have bowed down and worshipped him like right then and there, said, sorry, you know what, we got the wrong guy. This is not what we were told. But the die was already cast. And, and surely the high priest himself was unmoved by witnessing this miracle. This was the closest the high priest ever came to the miracles of Jesus. That was his slave who was healed. But his heart was unmoved. It had no effect. Jesus didn't expect him to repent because he knew that what must, what must soon take place, he was ready to face. And so we find number four, Christ's boldness. Number four, Christ's boldness. keep going verse 48 and jesus said to them have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber every day i was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures can't help but notice how calm cool and collected jesus is here but as we've been studying for three weeks in gethsemane this peace came after wrestling with God in prayer. He fought for this peace, but he has it, and now he's ready to face the cross. But first, Jesus must deal with this angry mob. He starts by opposing their hypocrisy. I mean, who do you think he was? This robber, this criminal. They knew better. They knew he was a nonviolent teacher. They knew he wasn't some thief hiding out in the hills. He taught in the temple, the most public spot, every day. If he had truly done something wrong, they could have arrested him any time. But Jesus knows why they're here at nighttime in the garden. Because they're hiding the fact that they're arresting an innocent man with, with no charges. But as Jesus says, this is all according to God's plan. Every single event leading up to the cross, and including the cross, must take place to fulfill the scriptures, which is to say to fulfill God's plan. Like Isaiah 53 says of Jesus, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but still he was oppressed, he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. It was all foreseen. The Old Testament foresaw the Messiah would die an unjust death at the hands of sinners. Even Peter's betrayal was foreseen. Psalm 49 or 41 verse 9, Zechariah 11 verse 12. This is all going according to God's plan. It's like Peter later said in his first sermon after the resurrection. He said that Jesus was, quote, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2:23. This fact explains why Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. And you realize that's what's happening, right? He is allowing himself to be arrested. Like he just said, he could call down 72,000 angels. He could incinerate all of them. But he willingly placed himself into the hands of sinners to be arrested, falsely tried, and executed. And why is he doing this? That's why he came. This is the hour for which he came. This is the whole reason he came. Do you realize they tried to arrest and kill Jesus Many, many times before this, it's not their first try. Like, uh, this whole ministry, pretty much since his first miracle, the Pharisees have been trying to arrest and kill Jesus. John chapter 5, Jesus calls God his own father. 
So they tried to kill him, but it wasn't his time. John chapter 7, he's teaching the temple. They sent, the priests sent the temple guard to arrest him way back then in John 7. But verse 30 says, they were seeking to seize him, but no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, again, he's teaching again in Jerusalem. This is earlier, much earlier, and they wanted to arrest him. But verse 20 says, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Even in his own hometown of Nazareth, Jesus had so offended them by the truth. This is early in his ministry. He so offended them by teaching the truth that they took him out of the synagogue, ran him up a hill, and they were going to throw him off a cliff. But Luke 4.30 says, passing through their midst, he went his way. It's like, wait, 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 wait what? He's got some Houdini moves or something. How do you just pass, uh, pass out of the myth? There's an angry mob trying to kill him and he just passes through. It doesn't say. But we just know he slips away every time. Why? Because it wasn't his time. It's not the right hour. It's not, not the hour for which he came. He wasn't ready yet. You're meant to realize by all of this, he's in control of every step along the way. It might seem that it's all swirling out of control around him, but this is all going exactly according to the Father's plan. And Jesus, he's on board. He's carrying out this plan. And here in Mark 14, Jesus finally lets himself be arrested. And as he said to his disciples just before this, John 12:23, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's like, this is, this is the hour, this time. Every step of the way, Jesus was backing up his own claim. John, verse, John 10, verse 18. He said of his life, he said, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. What does this teach? Well, it teaches that God is in control, even over evil. Like Genesis 50:20 says, what men mean for evil, God can use for good. And God was taking this greatest evil, the death of the innocent Son of Man, and He was going to use it for the greatest good, our redemption. And Jesus was willingly going to carry out this plan even unto His own death. And so even though these events are they're terrible, they're tragic, we can't help but read them and say, thank God. Thank God that Jesus did it. Thank God that Jesus obeyed. Thank God that he stuck with the plan. Thank God that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank God for Christ's boldness when this hour came. Because we know no one else could have done this. Well, at this point, according to John 18:12, it tells us that Jesus was tied up. So Peter has put his sword away. Jesus has diffused the situation they start tying Jesus up. They bind him. They're going to lead him back to the city, to Jerusalem. And he doesn't struggle. He doesn't put up a fight. doesn't resist. doesn't say anything. Like Isaiah 53 says of him, he's like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as he goes, he goes alone. Which brings us finally to number five. The disciples' beeline. You could put it. The disciples' beeline. From the mob's breakdown... Judas's betrayal, Peter's brashness, Christ's boldness. It ends with, if we could say, the disciples' beeline, meaning they're out of there. Verse 50, it says after this, and they all left him and fled. 
This, this too is, according to prophecy, Zechariah 13.7, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Jesus told him this. He told him this would happen, and, and here it is. But what, what happened? I thought all the disciples said they were ready and willing to follow Jesus unto death. But it became evident to them Jesus was not going to go down swinging. He was not resisting this. He was going along with this. And there was going to be no glorious death for them. They would all be arrested and killed as criminals. And that, that they weren't prepared for that. They didn't think about that. And as we learned last time, they were faced with the temptation to save their own flesh. And because they didn't pray, they had no strength of God to rely on. They merely had the strength of their own flesh. And that quickly ran out. They succumbed to temptation. And they all ran away. And so it goes for all those who do not keep watch over their souls and pray like we learned last time. So the disciples, they all run away. We expect the passage to end here, actually. But Mark, and Mark alone, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're very parallel, you know, during the the course of Christ's death. But we expect it to end here. But Mark alone gives us two unique verses, only here. And very interesting, very strange. And so let's finish by reading these. Verse 51. It says, A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheep and escaped naked. And that's how the text ends. So you might be thinking, okay, that's a little weird. What's going on here? It's very clear this young man is not one of the 11 disciples. He's someone new. Jesus had many secondary disciples. So, so who is this guy? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. This is only found in Mark. But the most reasonable guess is that this is Mark. This is Mark himself. Most believe this is Mark's personal testimony. Why would you believe that? Well, in the book of Acts, we know that Mark's mother's house becomes a home base for the disciples in Jerusalem. And and many believe that it was Mark's house where Jesus had the Last Supper, had a separate upper room. So we don't know for sure, but many believe that's the Last Supper house. So if that's true, and that's a big if, but if that's true, we can reconstruct the scene like this. Jesus and the disciples show up at Mark's house for that Last Supper. They go upstairs. There's a separate upper room, upper living area. Meanwhile, Mark is downstairs. As it gets late, Mark goes to sleep. Jesus and the disciples, they eventually leave the upper room. Well, what happens next? Most likely, Judas and the mob show up at Mark's house first. Remember, earlier, Judas was in that house. He left the upper room to go tell them, we've got Jesus, let's go get him right now. And and chances are, he he was still expecting Jesus to still be at Mark's house. So perhaps he leads the mob to Mark's house first. Jesus isn't there. Judas knows, well, okay, don't worry, I know where he's going next, Garden of Gethsemane. We go every night to pray there. And so off Judas and the mob goes from Mark's house to the garden. The ruckus has awoken young Mark, though, He sees the mob. He knows they're after Jesus. He decides to go after them, either to warn Jesus or simply to tag along. Either way, it's clear he leaves in great haste because he has no time to get dressed. He just gets up, he takes his linen sheet, covers himself, and he's off running to follow them. Mark watches this whole scene in the garden. Maybe he's out in the open. Maybe he's trying to hide behind an olive tree. But as Jesus is tied up, 
and all the other disciples run away, a Roman soldier lays hands on Mark. Fear grips him, and he runs away. He pulls free of the linen cloth, and he runs home naked. Now, we, we can't be dogmatic about that reconstruction at all. We, we don't know these things for sure, but it seems to fit quite nicely with what we do know. The more important question for us, though, is, is why is this even here? Either way, whether this is Mark or not, why is this here? What's, what's the point of this little episode? Well, I think these final two verses are given simply to drive home the point of the whole text, namely that Jesus is truly alone. By the end of this, everybody has left him. He's been thoroughly abandoned in his final hour. Everyone thought to save themselves. It's an abandoned ship, every man for himself mentality. They, they all just saved their own skin. They all ran away. And what was true for Mark would have been true for them all, for sure. If, if so needed, they would have all ran away naked. That's how thoroughly they abandoned him. This was a total failure, a complete abandonment. The sheep that Jesus called, they, they've all scattered. And if this is the end of the story... Like, if this was the end of Mark's gospel, this would be truly depressing. What does Jesus have to show for his three years of supernatural ministry? Nothing. Nothing. Not even one disciple. He's got nothing. They all ran away. One of them betrayed him. He's alone. They showed their real allegiance was to themselves. And we all would have done the same thing, by the way. But thankfully, this isn't the end of the story, and this highlights the reason why Jesus came, why he had to die. He had to die. He had to do this alone because all the sheep were lost. The sheep were lost to begin with. We're all lost sheep. Like Isaiah 53, 6 says, we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all, to fall on him. And this is the whole reason. All of humanity, we've turned aside from God and his ways. We're lost in our sin. But Jesus came as both the Lamb of God and the shepherd of our souls. He died to take our sins, to purchase our forgiveness, and then to bring us back, to gather us. Without his death, we the sheep could never be gathered. We would be lost forever. Without him, without his death, without his resurrection, we would be hopeless. But it is in him we have life and we can be gathered back again. as one body gathered to God. The disciples scatter, but after the resurrection, what is Christ's first order of business? It is to regather his lost, scattered sheep. His disciples, he brings them all back. And with the power of the cross behind him, he transforms them. He makes them new. He gives them his spirit. And after that, the disciples are empowered and they will never run away again. They were all renewed to follow Jesus unto death. And that's what they all did. All of the remaining disciples, in one way or another, they took their faith in Jesus to their graves. This is why he came. He came to clothe our nakedness and to bring us back to God, to gather his lost sheep. Peter himself, we'll see more when we get to Peter's denials, but he learned his lesson. And Peter recalls for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verse 24, he says of Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. And he says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's what Jesus did. Peter, he was a lost sheep. Jesus gathered him and he's calling us to be gathered as well. Make sure this is you. Have you returned to the shepherd of your soul? Don't place your faith in other men. Other men will fail you, will fall. We all stumble in many ways. But Jesus came because we need him. We need a real shepherd and guardian over our souls. Jesus overcame our sin. And even though he was all alone, he endured and he purchased that salvation. That's why we don't have to suffer eternally alone. We can rejoice eternally with him and with with one another. Now we can be reconciled to God forever. And this is why we give him the glory. This is why we give him our lives. This is why we follow him. And he now stands ready to give us as we follow as renewed sheep to give us all the strength we need to stand, to not fall away, to not run away, but to stand and to follow him. It's all from him. It's all for him. We're just beginning to see this as his hour has dawned. But we can already say to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ belongs to glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord God, to you belongs the glory and to your Son forever and ever. For you lived and yet you died. You were slain like a lamb led to the slaughter. You willingly gave up yourself, your eternal life, the the life of the God-man, Son of God, Son of Man, unto death. And in that death you were separated from the Father's goodness. You were made sin. You bore all of our sin, all the things we did, we've done, to deserve our separation, our death. You bore them, you took them, you endured them, and you overcame. And rising from the dead, you truly conquered death, our death, death itself. And you stand now giving new life to those who come to you, to the shepherd. And so we come, Lord. I pray everyone in here this morning comes and goes to you and has done so. And if not, that they would humble themselves. May we beware the fate of Judas. It doesn't pay to go your own way, to live for self. Your sin will never satisfy you, Lord. We know this to be true as you've told us. And so turn any heart away from their sin this morning and turn them unto you and unto your son where they will find mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation and will enter the fold of of God. Well, we're... We're always saddened in a way by what we see in these, in these final moments of your life, Lord Jesus. But at the same time, we, we thank you. We thank you for, for dying. We thank you for doing this, for enduring the cross and despising the shame, for going through with it. For by this, we now live and stand in your grace. To you be the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.